I'm, I'm happy to be here this morning. And um, every time that I'm here, I'm grateful to be a part of this gathering because um, I grew here. You guys helped me to grow up. I was challenged here. I was trusted here. I was mentored here. And so it is an honor that as one of your sons, I'm invited back and I'm entrusted with the opportunity and the responsibility of sharing from the Bible. And as Kevin mentioned, I lead a small congregation in the Glebe called Pivot 613. And we are currently right in the middle of a series um, that was inspired by the record of events in the early church. And we've called the series The Startup. And we're using the book of Acts, the first few chapters of the book of Acts, as a launch point for our discussions. And the passage that we're going to be talking about today reminded me of some of the lessons that we're learning. We, we live in a city where there is a burgeoning culture um, of startups, and there is a mystique and a, and a sexiness to the startup culture. And many companies and many organizations think of themselves as startups, but what they're really doing is not really starting something. They're just rebranding a product that somebody else has created. My opinion is that startups break ground in areas, true startups, break ground in areas that have been previously ignored or have been previously thought of as being too hard to work. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Church of Christ was a true startup. You see, one of the things that was completely misunderstood about, um, about Jesus and his mission and the early church was that they thought that they were simply a rebranding of the dominant religion of the time. And if you look at the events around the early church and around Jesus, it certainly looks like it on the outset. Jesus went to the temple. From all accounts, he generally followed the customs and rituals of the time. And from some of the scenes captured by the gospel writers, including the scene from the passage we will read today, Jesus is teaching at worship and meeting spaces. And so it can seem from the outset that what Jesus was doing was simply repackaging the dominant religion of the time in a more infectious and subversive mean. But the longer, the longer that you look at what Jesus was doing, the more you realize that what he was doing was going about the business of creating something completely new. He was not simply rebranding. He was not even just reinterpreting what they already knew. He was establishing something that was radically different. And it's, it's never more apparent than when he starts to say things like, you know, if you want to be great... You have to be a servant of all. That's completely upside down to the world in which he lived, and indeed in the world in which we live. I mean, if you want to be great in our world, you don't serve. You are ambitious. You step on every opportunity. You leverage every single advantage you have for more advantage. When Jesus says things like, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days, it must have just freaked out the religious elite listening to him at the time. When Jesus says things like, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, you have to be pretty nuts 
to say something like that. To say a definitive statement like that. I am the way and the truth of the life. Jesus is giving you no option other than to think he is crazy or he is exactly what he says he is. He's speaking to, in another instance, he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. He's saying, the time is coming when the place you will worship is irrelevant. The space, the actual geographic location that you worship is irrelevant. Worship will not be location-based. It will be a heart thing, spirit and truth. The, the longer you look at Jesus, the more you realize that he was about the business of creating something new, something different, something radically unique. And it is my opinion that Jesus is still doing the same thing today as he did back then. Jesus is still creating by the power of the Spirit. He's still subverting. He's still challenging the established order of doing things. As, as humans, we have this... Um, <laughs> We have this tendency to make monuments out of the successes of our past. If we have any kind of success, what we do is we write it down, we make a rule out of it, and then we set it in stone. But God is different from us. God literally formed the universe out of nothing. God loves to create new things. Just look around this room. There are so many different noses. There are 7 billion different noses on this world. God loves creating new things. And as I thought about this, I've begun to believe that God is more concerned with the future. He's not as concerned with our past. He's more concerned with the future. I believe that God is more concerned with who he wants you to be rather than who you have been. In fact, I'm pretty convinced that God is more concerned with where he would like to take you rather than keeping you comfortable in the space you currently occupy. We're going to read a little from the end of Mark 2. Last week you talked about this. Um, Kevin spoke about this. And we'll also read a little bit from Mark chapter 3. And um, as a quick refresher, at the end of Mark chapter 2, Jesus is having an interesting back and forth with the religious elite of his time. Jesus had been walking through a field with his disciples because they had no food. And because they were hungry, they picked some grains for food. And this just set the religious leaders off. Your disciples are breaking the rules. They're breaking the rules. (laughs) If you know anything about... um, the orthodox judaism of the time you'll know that any kind of work was strictly prohibited on the sabbath this was a rule that was a holdover from thousands of years before and it is the reason why the religious leaders are freaking out picking grain was considered to be work you were not supposed to work on the sabbath don't you know this jesus you guys are breaking the rules they're breaking the sabbath rules when we come to Mark chapter 2 at the end of it. I'm going to use a, a version of the Bible that is not in the um, seat thing in front of you. If you, want to, if, you, if you want to know the version of the Bible I'm reading from, it's the message. Um, you can find it on your Bible app. You can follow along just to make sure I'm reading the right thing. So let's have it up there. Mark chapter 2, verse 25. Breaking the Sabbath rules. And Jesus says, Really? Haven't you read what David did when he was hungry, along with those who were with him? 
how he entered the sanctuary and ate fresh bread off the altar with the chief priest Abiathar right there watching, holy bread that no one but priests were allowed to eat and handed it over to his companions. <laughs> then Jesus said, the Sabbath was made to serve us. We weren't made to serve the Sabbath. The son of man is no lackey to the Sabbath. He is in charge. Now, you would think that because Jesus decimated their accusations and dropped the mic, that they would just leave him alone. But you would be wrong. They did not let up. Oh, no. This was the Sabbath after all. The son of a carpenter can't just waltz in here and change thousands of years of customs. I mean, the Sabbath even predates David, who he's talking about. Doesn't he know this? Let's see if he'll have the chutzpah to do it again. Mark chapter 3. Verse 1, then he went back in the meeting place where he found a man with a crippled hand. The Pharisees had their eyes on Jesus to see if he would heal him, hoping to catch him in a Sabbath infraction. He said to the man with the crippled hand, stand here, stand here where we can see you. And he spoke to the people. What kind of action suits the Sabbath best? Doing good or doing evil, helping people or leaving them helpless? No one said a word. He looked them in the eye, one after another, angry now, furious at their hard-nosed religion. He said to the man, hold out your hand. He held it out. It was as good as new. The Pharisees got out as fast as they could, sputtering about how they would join forces with Herod's followers and ruin him. You know, because we are a movement that was founded by Jesus, and we have the benefit of Paul's letters as an understanding to why we do not follow the old Jewish law, we can fall into a crucial misunderstanding about the law. At the time of Jesus, these laws were like an oppressive cultural straitjacket. Paul writes about it in that manner, an oppressive cultural straitjacket. But these laws had not started out that way. As a matter of fact, the original intent for the law was good. Allow me to explain. You see, the law was given to the Jews who had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. So they had gone multiple generations as a subjugated people. When you suddenly free people who have been traumatized and brutalized for hundreds of years... They have a culture-wide PTSD. When they left Egypt, three million of them, there were three million people who had never known a day of freedom. So think about it. If all they had known was slavery and brutality, it takes a radical set of laws to reprogram their thinking. So, for example... The Sabbath makes sense when you understand the people to whom it was given. Think about it. If you as a people have spent 400 years being worked to the bone, to death, every single day, if your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and everyone you knew had been worked to the bone for 400 years, you have no understanding of what rest is. You do not know what it is like to take a day off and put your feet up and just, just breathe. 
You cannot even begin to know the healing power that rest can bring. This is why the Sabbath is so powerful and transformative for these former slaves. I mean, what would be more valuable to these people than a day of absolutely no work at all? This is why Jesus tells the Pharisees that they have everything upside down. They were not meant to serve the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath was meant to serve them. But what had happened in the thousands of years since the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt is that they had forgotten why these laws had been given. These laws were not a mechanism for the religious elite to control the population. No. These laws were given so that a people who had been brutalized by slavery could heal. They could build a functioning society with God as the center and the lifeblood of the community. As a matter of fact, if you, if you read the old laws in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, which are sometimes the most dry and boring books of the Bible, but if you start to read them through this lens, you start to understand how they could have been a force for good in a nation of brutalized and enslaved people. These laws had been given so that they could transition from being slaves to being free. There were supposed to be laws that led to emancipation, but instead they'd become a rule book that enslaved and squeezed and oppressed the people that lived under it. They had basically substituted one form of slavery for another. The law had been given as a way for these former slaves to find that they needed relationship with God. But over the years, instead of finding relationship, they created religion. Instead of finding God's love, they just enshrined the law and then made God inaccessible. And so if we look back to the scene that we read at the end of Mark chapter 2 and at the beginning of Mark chapter 3, we start to understand the significance of what is happening. Jesus is breaking the mold of what they knew. To them, he is flouting the Sabbath laws, but Jesus is not really breaking any rules, no. As a matter of fact, he's not even playing the same game that they seem so insistent on playing. He's completely writing a new script in which the Sabbath is about relationship with God, not about a set of rules that need to be followed. As a matter of fact, there's a Pharisee who, if you think about it, I think this Pharisee was one of the people chasing around Jesus in Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3, who was arguing with him. This Pharisee finally understood what Jesus was talking about. And he penned some of the best theses expanding the teachings of Jesus. In his letter to the Galatians church, he says something that helps you see how much he came to understand what Jesus was really saying. Galatians chapter 2. We know, we Jews know, that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. Now, I, I just want to stop right there. So, that phrase, non-Jewish sinners, that's a pejorative phrase. It would be like addressing a black, pas a black person with the N-word. Paul is saying something really shocking right here. 
Because that is how the Jews thought of as everybody that was an outsider, as beneath them, as culturally beneath them, as mentally, intellectually beneath them. And Jesus, rather Paul is saying, there is no difference. He's completely breaking this thing up and rewriting something new that is so new and powerful. That's why we who are outsiders, who are Gentiles of all races from all places of the earth can count ourselves as children of God. Paul is saying they have no advantage over us. He's saying something really, really powerful in this phrase. But that maybe that's a sermon for another time. Who, who wants to take that one? Anyone? <laughs> we know that we are not set right with God by rule keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it. We had the best system of rules the world had ever seen. Convinced that no human being can, can, can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we may be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Verse 17. Have some of you noticed that we're not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to do good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan. So what actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman. So that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine but it is lived by faith to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going to go back on that. The Pharisee who wrote these words was Paul. And I think it is so cool that Paul emerged as an early leader of the church. Because he's a member of the religious elite that was chasing Jesus around, that turned around and really got what Jesus was going on about. He understood that Jesus was not simply rebranding the religion that he had fought so hard to preserve. Jesus was creating something new, something life-giving, something that Paul felt it was worth letting go of his status for, something that Paul even felt it was worth dying for. And here's the sad thing. As a church of Christ, we have a tendency to fall into the same trap that the religious establishment of Jesus' time fell into. We have a tendency to enshrine certain aspects of our past without understanding that Jesus was using them to break new ground. Some of you in this congregation have known me for a long time. I've been associated with Greenbelt for um, uh, over 15 years now. We've known each other for a while. And some of you know that I've led worship in one form or another for, uh, for a really long time, since about 97. 
my whole time as a leader, I've had to navigate these waters that I started to find very tiresome. The old songs versus new songs. Why do we sing these songs? Why do we sing these repetitive songs? The, the old hymns have more substance. Why don't we sing more old songs? If, if you did not know this. So the old hymns like, uh, like, To God Be the Glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Or, Oh God, our help in ages past. Now I'm reaching far back. Eh? Oh God, our help in ages past. These songs written by Fanny Crosby and Isaac Watts, these old songs were just repurposed tunes of popular songs that were being sung in bars. They didn't even come up with new melodies. They just changed the words. It was a highly scandalous affair that these songs that were being sung in bars were suddenly being sung in congregations. Even writers of hymns from the 50s and 60s and 70s, Bill Gaither, Andre Crouch. You know, they wrote songs like, Because He Lives. Because He Lives, I can face tomorrow. Soon and very soon, we are going to... I'm reaching far back for these ones, aren't I? The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. These guys who wrote those songs, they will tell you that they were seriously attacked for writing cheesy, shallow, fluffy country music. Their music was viewed in the exact same way that contemporary music of today is viewed. And because I'm a student of church music and church history, it makes me laugh because I see us making the same mistakes over and over again. In fact, John Newton, I laughed when I read this story. John Newton wrote the most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Now, John Newton went on an epic rant through several sermons. He did like 50 sermons just eviscerating George Friedrich Handel. George Friedrich Handel wrote this piece of music called The Messiah. It's from which is the music where from which we get hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. John Newton hated that music so much. He preached 50 sermons about it. <laughs> the same kind of stuff that he was put through when he wrote Amazing Grace, he put another writer through it. He exhibited this exact same fundamentalism and resistance. But we make the same mistakes, don't we? We create monuments out of our past music instead of realizing that Jesus was just using those songs to breathe new life into the church. The revivals of the 1800s, they had Fanny Crosby's music as their anthems. The Jesus Movement, some of you are old enough to remember the Jesus Movement of the 70s. They had the songs of the Gaithers as their anthems. This is why those of you who are part of that, you love these songs so much. The Red Letter Christians, the emergent church of the late 90s, early 2000s, they had Hosanna Integrity music as their anthems. These days we have an explosion of church plants and they're using Hillsong and Elevation Church as their anthems. 
It happens over and over again. This is what Jesus is doing. He's breathing new life into his church. And these songs are simply the anthems of what he's doing. But let's bring this closer to home. So, Greenville Baptist is over 40 years old. But back in the beginning, it was actually a radical little weird congregation. (laughs) A few families left their congregation to start a new one with a more elder-led structure. And to make matters worse, they, they insisted on putting it out in the boonies. Now, this used to be the boonies. But here's the thing. The people back then could have never thought that even though they were a little congregation, little weird, little off in the boonies, that they would be instrumental in the life of a guy called Barry Boucher who came here as a young man that God would restore him and energize him and fix his family and then put his spirit in him and just set him on fire right in this congregation. And then he would go off to plant a new congregation that we now know of as the Life Center. But God was not done with you yet, was he? As a congregation at that time, you made a strategic move to meet in schools instead of buying a building, purchasing your own building, or building your own thing. If you're new to Greenbelt, you may not know that for many, many years, Greenbelt was intentional. It was not a mistake. They were intentional about meeting in schools. Because one of the values that they had as a congregation, a value that you still have to this day, was to support missionaries all over the world. So while other congregations were raising money to purchase land and build cathedrals, you guys were like, no, 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 we won't do that. Some of you remember that time, don't you? Weird little congregation in the east end of Ottawa that could have bought any property it wanted chose to do something else. They chose to invest in missionaries instead of investing in land. I think that's pretty cool. Jesus was creating something new in you. Jesus was making you into a congregation whose legacy was not that you were a megachurch, but rather that a small group of people could have a mega global impact. Instead of being a group that was trapped by the straitjacket tropes, religious tropes, Jesus had inspired you to be a different congregation that understood that your mission was not just local, but global. And then again, you saw God shake up the congregation. You bought a building in Beacon Hill. You set down roots. A couple of of years later, an arrogant young man from Uganda came in, and you took a risk on him that nobody else would have taken, And when the time came, you released him. But lest you think that I think of myself as your greatest achievement. (laughs) I, I, I want you to understand something significant. I want you to understand something significant. My story is not unique. My story is one of many other stories. Young people, young adults, youth that were inspired to ministry sitting right here. Jesus was shaking things up. 
and the discomfort that those of you that were here at that time felt as we transitioned from being one congregation to being another was for a purpose. And one of the purposes that I believe was that he was quietly inspiring people like myself into ministry. But these stories that I speak of, they're only the iceberg. My friend Don went to be with the Lord. I'm sorry, excuse me. A couple of months ago, my friend Don went to be with the Lord. And at the service celebrating his life, we heard so many stories of the way he had quietly touched the lives of people and how God had used him to bring comfort and healing to so many people. This room was full from this row all the way to the back, full of people that God had used Dawn to touch. And yet Dawn's story is not unique. God has used so many of you in countless incredible ways that you've become so accustomed to it you no longer even realize that it's happening. You may think that what you're doing is small and insignificant, but you do not understand how the work that Jesus is doing through you is rippling out in amazing ways. Here's the truth about Greenbelt that you may have forgotten. So many people, myself included, have found health and wholeness and healing at this congregation. So many people have prayed and found miraculous answers to prayer at this congregation. So many people have immigrated to Canada with no friends and no connections and have found their family right here in this congregation. These are the stories of God's continuing hand at work. You didn't need it to be a megachurch to be partners with him. You just needed to be faithful. You just needed to respond when Jesus started creating new things in you. And because of this, your impact as a group, as a congregation, is much bigger than you will ever know. Now, as a congregation, we have much to celebrate about our history, don't we? But the problem with celebrating history is that we create monuments out of it. And sometimes these monuments can stifle the continuing work of Jesus. God has done some amazing things in our midst, but he is not yet done. And it is this persuasion that inspired me to bring this message this morning. And so I challenge you. I challenge you, my family. I challenge you to step away from the tendency to create religious monuments. Embrace the freshness of your relationship with Jesus. So this morning, I believe that this passage in Mark chapter 2 is a challenge to us. Jesus is creating something new. It is his nature. Our faith, therefore, is not one of stagnation, but one of motion. Our movement, our congregation, our lives, if they're yielded to Jesus, they will not have the staleness and rot of stagnation. They will have the life of movement. Your story is not done. Not even close. Your congregation is not done. Not even close. 
The story of your family is not done, not even close. Jesus wants to create something new through you. It is what he does. Create. And all we have to do is leave behind the monuments of our past. All we have to do is step out of the stories of our past. All we have to do is realize that Jesus wants so much better for us than what we think we've had in the past. So let's step forward together. Let's allow the Spirit of Christ to birth a new river of life right in our midst. Let's allow the creative power and work of Jesus to course right through our congregation. Let's trust that the work that he seeks to accomplish in us is for our good. Amen. Worship team, please come back here. Let's pray. God, I pray that your spirit of life and truth will birth freshness in us. Will bring about a transformation in our lives and in our congregations that we cannot do on our own. We don't want to work it up and stir it up on our own. No, we want to submit to you. God, we know that you love creating new things. We submit our families, our lives, our congregation to you. That your work of creation may begin again. To God be the glory. Amen.